Good evening. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 15. Over the last couple weeks, we've been walking through the life of Abram. Jeff started us off in Genesis 12, where God calls Abram out of everything that he knows and promises them that one day his family would grow to be a great nation and that they would possess the promised land. In Genesis 15, we meet Abram wrestling with these promises. He's asking God, how are you going to make me a great nation when you've given me no children? How long, O Lord, until we possess the promised land? And tonight we're going to see that God's commitment to his people, as he reminds Abram of these promises, as he confirms them by making covenant with Abram. So if you would, read with me Genesis chapter 15. We're going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 21. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me.
that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Nearly three years ago, my wife Shelley and I were married on this stage. We met here at Redeemer, actually asked her out on our first date right here. Um, I proposed on this stage, and then um, several months later, we were married right here. Tonight, we're going to talk about faith and covenant. Marriage is a helpful image for us. Covenant is a strange word. We don't use it often. So marriage is helpful. It's not a perfect image, but it's helpful because in its simplest form, it shows a relationship between two people who trust one another's promises in faith. That afternoon, we made vows to one another, promising to hold fast to each other through sickness and in health, through thick and thin, for richer, for poorer, as long as we both shall live. Those vows required trust and faith. Neither of us had any idea what our our lives would look like. Instead, in faith, we agreed to love and to cherish one another through it all. After we said our vows, we were pronounced husband and wife, and we were joined in covenant marriage. Those promises we made in faith rested on the foundation of covenant. What I mean by that is that our bond is built on something outside of ourselves. It's not up to our feelings day in and day out. If that were the case, our marriage would crumble, it'd fall apart, it wouldn't last. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, once wrote to a young married couple on their wedding day. He said, quote, It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains the love. Now tonight, we're not talking about marriage, but we will talk about a relationship that's being worked out. It's being formed around faith and trust and promises that find their foundation on covenant. And just like marriage, when faith and covenant are joined together, the possibility for deep and abiding relationships exist. The promises God has made to Abram seem out of reach. When we meet him in Genesis 15, he needs assurance that God's going to follow through. Therefore, God meets Abram with a covenant, a sign to confirm that he will keep his word. So tonight we're going to look at this passage under two headings. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at righteous faith. And then second, in verses 7 through 21, we're going to look at covenant security. So if you would read with me again, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So up until this point, 
Abram's response to God has been silent obedience. He hasn't said a word back to God. He's a nomad. He's a foreigner. He's been called out from his homeland to go to the, the land that God would show him. And Abram's been tested. He's been tested in the realm of security, anxiety, ambition. But even when Abram has placed God's promises in jeopardy, God has held him fast. And in chapter 15, Abram finally responds to God with words, in particular with doubts. I've heard it said that unbelief doesn't doubt. Faith doubts. It's Abram's faith that has the courage, that gives him the courage to come to God and ask for assurance. And God answers Abram, and he doesn't waste a word. So we're going to walk through this narrative slowly. So let's look again at verse 1. Verse 1 says that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. If you're not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In other words, God says, Abram, you have nothing to fear, for I Yahweh, the God of the universe, will lead, guide, and protect you. Don't trust the voices around you. I know that they're saying that this is impossible. Trust me. I will fulfill the promise that I have made to you. And Abram responds, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, God's promise was wild, so Abram tries to tame it. He says, God, how are you going to make me a great nation when I have no children? I am old. Sarai's old. Why don't you just substitute our servant, Eliezer of Damascus? And these words, these words bring a strange comfort to me because they show a hero of the faith, Father Abraham, as a human you see, he's not, uh, it's tempting to think of Abraham, to think of the, uh, many of the characters in the Old Testament as just kind of eyes glazed over and just walking into the unknown, trusting the Lord. But that's not what he's doing. He's a man. He's trying to discern what God is up to, but he can't figure it out. And so he helps, uh, he attempts to help God and provide him someone who's already alive, he's in the family. Um, this guy can make this promise come true. God doesn't accept Abram's offer. Instead, he lifts Abram's eyes from himself and to the sky. And he says, look at the sky, count the stars. Can you do it? Count your descendants. That's how big your family's going to be, Abram. And there's this tension. Could Abram believe the wild promise that God has made to him? And verse 6 says that, and Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, years later, the Apostle Paul would, uh, would write in order to illustrate what it means to be justified, to be made right in the eyes of God by faith. He would write in his fourth chapter to the Romans, Abram did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15:6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's so important because it answers the question, how does man, particularly how does sinful man stand right in the eyes of a holy God? And this verse tells us that we are justified, that we are made right by God's grace through faith. Abram's faith was counted as righteous because Abram trusted that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, it's the object of Abram's faith that saves. Abram's hope and his faith had an object, and it's only when Abram curves in on himself and begins to, uh, to, to look at the things right in front of him and grasp for those that he begins to doubt. Because indeed, if the promises are left up to him, then they're impossible. And similarly, for us, if the object of our hope is, say, family and friends or uh, money and possessions, health and comfort, then the moment that those things begin to go away, then our faith's going to crumble. Our faith is going to go away with them. Abram's faith is righteous because he trusted that God would act for him. I heard a pastor once say, quote, faith faces the facts, but it also faces the fact of God. Say again, faith faces the facts, but it also faces the fact of God. Abram's faith was not wishful thinking, saying, well, I'm just going to be optimistic that this kind of turns out in the end. I'm just going to hope that, that all of this works out. That wasn't Abram's faith. Abram looked at the facts, and he said, there's no way, there's absolutely no way. But my God is also one of the facts of this experience, and he has been faithful to me, and I will trust him despite all the evidence contrary Righteous faith, trust that God is who he says he is and that what his promises are, what he says they are. And we trust that he will act for us, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. How we think about salvation is vitally important. It's one of the most important questions that followers of Christ can answer. And this evening, Many of us might wholeheartedly agree that we are saved by faith alone. But deep in our hearts, it's not that simple, is it? We deeply desire to save ourselves. Personally, I often want to believe that God saved me based on the things that I have done because that gives me control. Perhaps you you can relate, or maybe you don't struggle to try and earn God's favor. Perhaps you struggle to see your need for a savior. There's a temptation to think, well, I've been justified, so I'm good. And become so unmoved, so comfortable, that we lose sight of the miracle and the joy of our salvation. Perhaps you're exhausted and afraid. Maybe there's a sin in your life that you can't kill and you can't imagine a God that would love you when you so frequently mess up. Or maybe there's a suffering in your life that is so close and faith is so 
hard. When we think of our own life, it's important for us to to understand that when Abram believed, he was declared righteous. He was not made righteous. As we'll see, Abram will sin again and again and again. But when he is declared righteous, then his past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. We must not confuse the two. We don't make ourselves righteous in order to be declared righteous. Say that again. We don't make ourselves righteous in order to be declared righteous. Just like Abraham, we aren't finished products. We are still going to work to try and earn our salvation. We still forget to praise God for the salvation that he purchased for us. We still sin and we still lack faith in the midst of trials. But when we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus, then we are declared righteous. And our past, present, and future sins are forgiven. We are clothed in Jesus's righteousness. Our sin is exchanged for his perfection. We are saved by Jesus, the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. And it is because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness that we can draw near to God with full assurance and faith and trust that he will hold us fast. My preaching professor, uh, Robert Smith Jr., he would always emphasize to us that the indicative must drive the imperative. Which is to say that the more that we understand what's true about us, what's most true about us, that we are declared righteous by faith, then the more we begin to pursue righteousness, when we understand what's most true about us, that that actually frees us and motivates us to then pursue righteousness. Our affections begin to change and we desire what the Lord desires. No, no, Christ's righteousness does not give us an excuse to sin. Instead, as we grasp God's grace, we begin to realize that true joy and pleasure are found in God alone and living in accordance with his word. So I ask, have we exercised this kind of saving faith in God? The question comes back upon us. Have we trusted him that Christ is who he says he is and that the promises of salvation are what he says they are? Have we rested in him? And do we continue to trust him when things don't go as planned or the moment things change and start to go for the worse, do we run away from him or do we run to him? Abram was staring at an impossible promise. But because God was more real to him than the impossibility, he continued to trust God. These first six verses provide us a picture of righteous faith. Abram trusts that God will act for him and create from he he and Sarai a great nation, even when all the evidence says that it's impossible. In verses 7 through 21, the focus is going to shift to the land. Where will this great nation dwell? Therefore, God shows Abram that his promises are secure by making a covenant. So now we're going to move into point two, covenant security. So if you would read with me verses 7 through 21. 
And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land, river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So in verses 7 through 21, We move from the promise of children to the promise of land. God has brought Abram out of the Ur, uh, from the Ur of the Chaldeans, and to Canaan, the promised land. And similar to verses 1 through 6, Abram's seeking assurance. But this time he's seeking a sign. He said, how can I know, Lord? How can I know that I shall possess it? Abram wants something more than a reminder this time. He wants something tangible. He wants something that he can, he can hold, that he can see. And throughout Scripture, we'll see that God's regular way to confirm his word and to strengthen his people's faith is through signs. And here, God answers him in a formal covenant. And this covenant will demonstrate God's commitment to his promises to Abraham. So once, uh, once again, we'll, let's walk through this narrative uh, slowly. So first, we see that God instructs Abram to gather an assortment of animals, to cut them in half, to lay them across from each other. At this point, we, uh, Abram probably doesn't know what's going on. As far as he knows, he's preparing some ritual sacrifice. And the entire scene's dark and vivid. There's uh, words of deep darkness and fire and smoke and ravenous birds. And we read in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abram. And anytime we read that God causes a deep sleep, we need to pay attention. This is significant. And the same uh, word for sleep here is the same sleep that God caused upon Adam when he was to take one of his ribs and to fashion Eve. It's the type of sleep uh, that, that signals that God's about to do something very important. And at this point, if we take a step back and we look at it, it makes sense to say, what in the world does this have to do with confirming God's word and providing assurance for Abram? What is going on? But this ceremony is highly symbolic and very significant. 
See, in Abram's day, uh, when you were going to enter into covenant with someone, you would, uh, you would gather this assortment of animals, you would cut them in half, and you would display them across. And then two people would come together. They would make these promises together, and then they would walk through the cut, in piece, the cut, the cut animals in pieces. And what this was to signal is that, may it be done to me what's happened to these animals if I break the promises. The promises that I make to you, may it be done to me if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain. Both parties were on the hook. Both of them were subject to the penalties if they didn't, uh, if they didn't fulfill their promises. And immediately following this, God then directs his attention back to the land. And we, we read in verses 13 through 16 where he tells Abram what's in store for his family. He says, the, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you, sh- you shall go to your fathers in peace shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God tells Abram that his family, that they're going to be slaves in a foreign land. And this is foreshadowing uh, their, their slavery in Egypt that's to come. But God also says that he's going to rescue them. And God will wait He'll wait patiently until the residents, those who are dwelling currently in the promised land, are so deeply entrenched in sin that judgment must come. And we'll see this this promise fulfilled when we get to Joshua, when they begin the conquest into the promised land. So at first glance, this seems like a pretty discouraging future, right? He's telling them that they're going to be slaves. But what God is saying is, Abram, just as I protected you, just, that I, just as I have provided for you, I am going to protect and provide for your family. I'm going to follow through on the promises that I have made. And here it's, it's helpful to remember that the Genesis is written by Moses to the nation of Israel as they have just uh, um, walked through the Red Sea. They've escaped Egypt And so they're hearing this, and this actually would have been pretty encouraging because the prophecy is being fulfilled. They have evidence that they can stand on that that this is a God that they can trust. And this highlights one of the most helpful and powerful aspects of the Bible because Scripture allows God's people to look back and to look forward. When we read the Bible, we're able to look back and we can see that history shows that this is a God that we can trust. We can look back and we can see how he has fulfilled promise after promise after promise, which then gives us the buoyancy, gives us the weight to walk in faith, trusting that this same God is the God that is going to follow through on the promises he's made to us. Now we get to verse 17, where the covenant ceremony begins. and says that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God makes a covenant with Abram. This word makes means to cut. God cuts a covenant with Abram. 
And what is remarkable about this covenant ceremony is that only one walks through. Abram doesn't walk through the pieces. Only God, in the form of a smoking pot and the flaming torch, passes between the pieces. Just as Abram's wondering, God, how can I know with 100% certainty that you are going to fulfill these promises? God answered by assuming the full risk of the covenant. He walked through the slaughtered animals as a sign of his faithfulness to Abram. In other words, if he didn't fulfill his promises, then his holiness and his perfection are to be cut into pieces like these animals. See, the life of faith brings with it pesky gaps. Genesis 15 shows us that God doesn't operate on our time scale. Years ago, Abram was called out and received great promises. But in Genesis 15, Abram's wondering, God, are you really going to come through? And so much of our journey of faith resembles Abram's. We who have placed our faith in Christ have received great promises from God. But we still live in the gap of promise received and promise fulfilled, often referred to as the the now but not yet. For example, God promises to provide a way out of temptation, but we still sin. God promises that our salvation is secure no matter what, but we often doubt. God promises to never leave us nor forsake us, but we often wonder where God is. God promises to finish the good work he has begun in us, We often feel frustrated with where we're at. God promises to come back, but we look at our world and we cry, how long, O Lord? So perhaps you're like me and you wish that God would relate to us like Abram. I mean, can't God give us something? If he would just give us something to help us remember that he is faithful, then maybe we could make it through. I don't know about you, but I don't see any cut-up animals smoking fire pots and flaming torches around. How can we know, like Abram, that we will possess all of God's amazing promises? God answered this question 2,000 years ago by sending his son Jesus, whose body was nailed to the cross and his blood was spilled to ratify a new and better covenant. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And what Jesus is saying is this, my friends, long ago, God the Father, God my Father, said to your father Abram, I promise unto death. I'm here to pay the price. Not only that you might be redeemed from your sins, but that you could know that there is no power in all the universe that can prevent you from receiving the blessings that God has promised you because I have sealed these promises with my blood. The Apostle Paul would later write that for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So how can we know like Abram? We look to the cross. And who hangs there? Jesus, the Son of God. The cross shows us the depth of God's love and that he will always come through. 
Our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is not in the quality of our faith. Our hope is safe and secure in the object of our faith, Jesus, in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for you are indeed a God that we can trust. Oh God, would you give us belief where there is unbelief and trust in you when we so desire to trust in ourselves. And let us never forget that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.